So if you have just come back from a trip to the moon and you don't know what we're preaching about, let me catch you up. Okay, thanks for asking that. Let me just recap a little bit. Okay, if you have been to the moon, talk to Elon Musk. He's wanting to go beyond the moon. Okay. Jesus was sitting with his disciples on the Mount of Olives, and they asked him this question. And they said, and, and privately saying to him, tell us when these things, now they're asking him about the end times, will be, and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age. So the foundation of what we're speaking through here, it's the times end times understood by knowing it's not when. We're not trying to figure out when Jesus is going to re- return. We're not trying to figure out when the rapture is going to happen. Okay? But how it will all take place. There's an understanding that needs to happen. And not what, you can also say not who in that um, context as well, um, but why. Okay? So, well, who's going to be the Antichrist? Everyone's to know. They've already blamed Obama for being the Antichrist and stuff. Poor man, but he actually isn't. Okay? And it's not going to be an American. I promise you that much. Okay? Um, we are preaching through the end times, understanding, but we've had to go on a foundational journey. Okay, to understand how the end plays out. If you don't know how it began and how things still play out today, it's going to play out differently for you. Okay, so we've been talking in, into this foundation of establishing and understanding Israel, the Jewish people, and how that relates to us as Gentiles. The church has not replaced Israel. Okay? How, what we are saying is we are not as the church the new Israel. We are the true and real Israel. Grafted in, in really Romans, Romans, Romans 11, into the existing story that's already in place. Right. It's very important to understand these things, okay? And the time of the Gentiles will come to an end. And Paul says there, there's a lot of theological talk about all Israel will be saved. And some people say it can't mean all. But there will be a time where there will be a revival in Israel. And many Jewish people will return, will, will respond to the Messiah and be saved. Okay, and that's a sign of the end of the times. Okay, so we've been speaking through the last few weeks of the covenants, the, the, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the Davidic covenant. If you read through those things, understanding the two of them, the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenant, are unconditional, meaning they will not change. They remain in place. He's a God of love. He's a God that wouldn't lie. He's not that He says one thing to His children, and then, ah, you know what? I've decided something different how would, what would that mean for us if he decided now that through the blood of Jesus, oh, sorry, it wasn't good enough, we're going to have to do something else. We're all lost, okay? Unconditional. Okay, the mosaic with the Ten Commandments was conditional. And we understand that Davidic and Abrahamic is a one-way promise. God set it in order towards his people, okay? The mosaic is a bilateral, meaning if you do this, I will do that. It's requiring obedience, as God was showing His people and how to work out. But we're going to go further back. Today's going to be a little bit of a history lesson as well about um, land and the, the understanding of Jerusalem and the city, but a place called the Temple Mount. Again, okay, I want to give you some historical context to the point of what's going to play out at the end of this piece of land um, that, was, that, that is there in Jerusalem. Okay? There's an area of the land called the Land of Moriah. Okay, and we're going to read through some passages today and understand as we walk through this and that together. The land of Moriah means God, Moriah means God is my teacher. Meaning He will show me the way. He will, and when I think about that, I always think of Psalm 25. That Farnas keeps repeating, says, make your way known to me. Teach me your paths. Lead me in trust and teach me. Okay, He will lead us. 
The land of Moriah was an interesting and an understanding of what this means to us now. Okay, so if we look about where that area is, you will see this is an old map of the context of Abraham's time. Abraham lived in that bottom town called Beersheba. Abraham, it says, he settled in the land of Beersheba. But there was a time when he had to walk all the way through the valleys of the two mountains on either side up to the area called the land of Moriah. Okay? And uh, we understand as we build up to this point now, Isaac has been born. The promise has been born through the son. Okay? God, he shows that he protects Hagar and Ishmael with the son that was born through the maidservant Hagar. Okay? And then through all his travels, he sets up a treaty and a covenant with Abimelech who he lied to about this Sarah being his daughter, sorry, being his sister and not his wife. Okay, and God intervened because he what? He was protecting the seed. Okay, that's to go forth as Abraham's seed would go forward and understands. Now, just to give you a map and an understanding of the place and area where these things are taking place. So we're going to read from, us, uh, from Genesis 22 this morning. And this is the story of the sacrifice of Isaac. Okay, and after these things... God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, that's key to understand here, of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abram lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Now remember God said to him, he will, he will show him which mountain, and he's now seen the place. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his Isaac, his son. Now they say Isaac was probably around about 30 years old. Okay, so he wasn't a teenager. He was around 30. He could easily have fended off his hundred and something year old dad. Okay, but he was obedient to what needed to take place here. Which is quite interesting, his age. Okay, because Jesus was around about 30 when he started his ministry. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. It's a flint, they would say. And they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the wood, the, sorry, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. You've got to put this in human terms. Abraham wasn't a robot. He wasn't AI, just going through like, nur, 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 go and sacrifice my son. He was a father who cared for his son, the promise, prepared to lay it down. Warren and Kirsten were prepared to lay it down, and in that God raised it up. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out of his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. 
He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And as it has been said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. What a, what a beautiful story, but what a, uh, uh, a story of, that draws upon your heart and your emotion. If any of you have struggled to have children, and God tells you to give your child up, the pain in your own heart, but when you trust God, and you know that He's a good father, Abraham knew, if I can trust Him for the promise, He will provide for the sacrifice. He knew God Almighty, okay? I want to highlight a few things in this passage as we journey through here come this morning. Some key points. Sorry, as it keeps going. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself, this is now confirming this covenant, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies, enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. We are blessed because of this, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived in Beersheba. Okay, some things to take note as we walk through this passage. Okay, the place, the land of Moriah, the place. Okay, so when he was walking through the valley and seeing on the mountains, the Lord told him specifically which mountain I want you to go up and make an altar up there to sacrifice your son. Obedience to the details that God gave him. Do you know that this is the first time in the Bible, the word in the Torah, the word love is used in this passage. Okay, the word, the word love here is speaking of, um, well, the first time something is used, is called the, it's called the principle of first mention. So you take note of it, because God's making a point of what He's saying here to His people, okay? It's a symbolism, okay, of what Jesus would do for us in years to come in love, and what the Father would play out for us in love, this process of love. This is a loving time that He was having, and Abraham being obedient to what God was saying. It is also the first time that the word worship in the Torah is used in this passage. So take those two together. Love, you cannot worship if you don't have love. And you cannot love if you don't have true worship to the one true God. Okay? It's again the first time it's mentioned. It's a, it's a Hebrew word called saha, which literally means to fall flat on your face. To be prostrate before God. Okay? And this would be a place of sacrifice. As we understand, worship is sacrifice. We offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. Not an animal. Okay? Not an animal sacrifice. We sacrifice our lives to Him. So the moment we understand what's happening here today was a foreshadow okay, of what the Father was going to be doing with His own Son, Jesus, who would be laid down as a sacrifice for all of us. Okay, and we understand the picture of what's being played out here. Okay, so now you see that land, you see bottom left, that's where, bottom is where Abraham settled in the land of Beersheba, but was led to the Mount of Moriah. Okay, so now we're going to fast forward a couple of hundred years okay, to the time of David. Now, 
Just think, hundreds and hundreds of years have gone by. And David now, through all his ups and downs, he's anointed king by, um, by Samuel. And he's in the background. And then he starts arising as becoming king over all Israel. And it says in the beginning of Chronicles that they, they said they gave David his heart, saying, we are with you. You be our king. And the first place that David goes is he takes Zion, okay, which is known as Jerusalem, okay, and he calls that place the city of David. Okay? So that's just a picture of what it would look like. This is an artist's depiction of what the city of David would have looked like. Okay, I'm, I'm showing you all, all these things on purpose because there's a ramp up here, Abraham, and then you go hundreds, nearly a thousand years to David's reign. Okay, and he firstly takes Zion, which is Jerusalem, and he establishes his city um, over, over in this area over here. He has many more victories. Okay, he brings the ark back to Jerusalem. They're celebrating. Remember, Uzzah dies. The cart's, it's on a cart. Uzzah touches to try and hold the cart out. He dies. It says there, David feared the Lord that day. But then what they did was every six steps they sacrificed an animal. Okay, the distance was from about Simonstown to Musenberg. Every six steps. One, two, okay, we do a sacrifice. Because he wanted to please the Lord. Because he knew he had not followed what the Lord had said about getting the ark back into Jerusalem. He was just doing it, putting on a cart. It was never meant to be on a cart. It was meant to be carried by the Levites. So he wanted to honor God the correct way and put things in place. But what's important to understand here is why does David go and take Jerusalem first? It's the first place that he goes to and he wins a battle and takes the land. Okay? What I will suggest to you is that he saw the place. He knew the place that God had spoken to Abraham thousands, well, hundreds of years ago. Okay? And he knew that Israel needed to occupy this territory because Israel weren't occupying that territory. And they needed to go and take that land. And I'll confirm this to you in scriptures. I'm not making up stories here. Okay? And David, and this is the beginning of Chronicles 11, and David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, okay, that is Jebus, where the Jebusites were, the inhabitants of the land. Israel were not occupying that territory. Now, it's hundreds of years since Abraham was there, okay, and they had never occupied this area. And the inhabitants of Jebus said to David, you will not come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, and that is the city of David, and David said, whoever strikes the Jebusites first shall be chief and commander. And he took the land. And he took this territory. Okay? There's a reason why David was taking this area first. Because he understood what he had seen and what God had shown him about the place. Okay? This is all happening in about 1,000 B.C. Okay? It's 3,000 years ago that this story is taking place. Now, if you really look at that valley and this map here, you will see... This is Jerusalem. This is the city of David, just south of, 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 of Jerusalem over there. You'll see that valley on the right-hand side. That is the Kidron Valley. Okay, when David writes in Psalm 23, the valley of the shadow of death, it's right there. He's speaking about these things. Okay, that is the city of David as a depiction of what that city would look like and what it would be. Okay. Also, understanding, I was talking a little bit about this last week, Jerusalem okay, comes from the territory of land given to the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, so Benjamin, who was Benjamin? Benjamin was the last son of Jacob. Okay, but this portion of territory is seeming one of the most important in God's eyes. And I'll explain to you and show you why. 
Okay, so again, it's not God's order, the oldest getting everything. The traditions of how things are said about are not working. And God's doing it the way He wants to do it. The youngest, Benjamin, this is part of His land and territory, but this town will be very important in significance of what it is. Okay, the smallest, leap, the smallest tribe carrying the most significance in all the place. Okay, and the story goes on with David. Okay, and God establishes covenant with him. There was Bathsheba and Uriah, that whole story they took out there. David's son, Absalom, then starts rising up against him, and he returns to Jerusalem, and David has to flee from Jerusalem, and Absalom is killed, and David returns to Jerusalem, seeing more and more victories. Okay, the story keeps unfolding, but I wanted to see and point to you about this piece of land that is still relevant, and it's going to play out for us and how we see it going on. As the story unfolds, and this verse just... I actually read this just a couple of days before looking at all this. 1, 1 Chronicles 21. One. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Okay, which just caught my attention. Satan, he was against the chosen people of God. We understand that. Okay. And what happened here is David, the Lord never asked David to count the people. Okay, you remember in Jesus' time, what did Caesar do? He did a census. Why, why are they doing a census? To see how big and vast his kingdom is. That's why he's doing that. Okay? And this was never on God's heart. Time before or time after, and exactly where God does say count the people, but he didn't instruct him to do it. David's been incited here by the enemy, which made me think. Think of the number of churches where the enemy, it says, then Satan stood against the church and incited the leaders to look on worldly measures and values according to how, what the success of the church is. So because we've got a lot of money in the bank, because we're big numbers, because we've got all these kind of things, those measures are not God's heart for the church at all. The measure for us is His presence. Okay, All the other things are added bonuses about walking in obedience with what, the God, is, what God is showing us and what He's speaking to us to. So this is a key point here. Yes, David's walked through the Bathsheba, David's um, and um, and Uriah stuff, does he, does he, is he, you know, at such a place of extent and power, no more battles, let's count the people. Subtle how Satan works, okay? So what happens is God is then angry with David and gives him the choice of what judgment he wants to be played out upon him, okay? Now it seems like God is quite harsh with David. Remember in Hebrews, it speaks about God disciplines the ones he loves, Okay? So let's read a little bit further down in Chronicles. Now this is God, the prophet Gad, coming to, jo- to David and giving him the choice. This is what God's saying to you. Uh, because you've counted numbers, God's going to give judgment. Okay, this is what your choices are. So God gave, came, Gad came, came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, choose what you will, either three years of famine or three months of devastation by your foes while the sword of your enemies overtook you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord. Pestilence on the land with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. He's giving him a choice. You decide which one you want to do yeah, David. Okay. Yeah. Just, I, I always put this into church context. Of like, are we obeying the Lord or doing what we want to do? And there's judgment when you do what you want to do. And you just kind of make, you see, we live in a world today where you can make it look impressive, but actually it's got no power. There's nothing of the Spirit there. Okay. 
We read the next part of the passage. So now he makes the choice. So the Lord sent, he, he chose to, the pestilence of three days. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel and 70,000 men of Israel fell and God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord said, and he relented from the calamity, and he said to the angel who was working destruction, it is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Okay, now, now the, the picture's unfolding here. That's the city of David on the bottom side. Okay, and on top of that, top of the hill, that is the threshing floor of Ornan the, Jebus the Jebusite. Okay, so the plague takes out 70,000 men. It moves from north to south, meaning from the tribe of Dan down to Bathsheba. But as it gets to Jerusalem, the Lord tells the angel to stop. Okay, now this is all taking place in the land of Moriah. Okay, remember thousands of years ago, Abraham, this is all taking place, the city of David, this is still the land of Moriah. Read the next passage. Okay, now the angel of the Lord had commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up after all this now. He stopped the angel at this threshing floor, and this is what God commands through the prophet to go to David. So that David should go up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan was threshing wheat. He turned and saw the angel, and his four sons who were with him hid themselves. And as David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David and went out from the threshing floor and paid homage to David with his face to the ground. This territory, this land, I'm going to build this picture for you. This is the first time that David builds an altar to the Lord. They've done a lot of sacrifice, but he builds an altar to the Lord, okay? This is the same place in the land of Moriah where Abraham established an altar, okay, on this threshing floor. This is the same place where Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac. So David buys this piece of land for 600 shekels of gold. It says that in the Chronicles, but in Samuel it says he bought it for 50 shekels of silver. Okay, the 600 shekels of gold means he bought the whole land. The 50 shekels of silver means he only bought the threshing floor. Okay? And he presented uh, uh, peace and offerings to the Lord, and the fire from heaven came, consumed the offerings, and the Lord commanded the angel to put his sword back in his sheath. I'm not reading all the passages, but this is what takes place. And later on in the chapter, David announces, Then David said, Here shall be the house of the Lord God, and here the altar of burnt offering for Israel. He's basically commanding and saying, Here we are going to build a temple for the Lord. Knowing that the tabernacle of the Lord was through Moses is in the, in the wilderness in Gibeon. If you read through the rest of chapter 22, know, but knowing it says there that David couldn't go there because he was afraid of the sword of the Lord. Okay? So he pulled an altar here and said, Here we will build the house for the Lord. Okay? As we said last week, Okay, David wanted to build a house for the Lord, but he couldn't because he had blood in his hands. And there was reasons God said to know, no, you will prepare for your son to build the temple. Now understand this. This is all taking place in the land of Moriah. Okay, on that hilltop where Abraham was called to go and sacrifice his son. This threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite is the same place where the angel stops. The same place that David says, now we will build a temple to the Lord. And Solomon then constructs the temple on this threshing floor of Ornan. Okay, so we read further on 
and it says here about Samuel, it's about Solomon, in the beginning of 2 Chronicles 3, 1, it says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. It's no longer the land of Moriah. It's been called, this is the mountain, the place that God spoke a thousand years ago to Abraham, this same place. You will now build a temple on Mount Moriah, where the Lord has appeared to David, his father, and the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. You see how God never misses a beat, and God has a plan, and God sets things in place from thousands of years before. He doesn't lie. He doesn't relent. If He's chosen something, He holds truth to His word. Okay. This whole area that that is now established on, that that temple is called the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Okay? It's no longer, I said, the land of Moriah, but Mount Moriah. Okay, so you'll see he has a picture of Solomon's temple that he constructed. This is now on that threshing floor of Ornan that you saw. So where's the city of David? It's just south of it. Okay? And up north is this threshing floor where these temple and the temple mount area has been established. This is in 1000 BC. Abraham was there 1000 years before that sacrificing his son before God. The story unfolds even better. There's talks you can see on the left and the right. On the left hand side normally they speak in Acts about they were speaking at Solomon's portico. Okay, which is like a porch. There's areas where people used to speak. These are the three areas, the outer court, the inner court, the holy of holies. That's a picture of the temple that Solomon built. So if you look at the temple, this temple was destroyed with Nebuchadnezzar coming in 587 B.C. Okay? And then we see through Nehemiah and Ezra, the rebuilding of the walls and establishing of a temple which was not even close to this. That's why all the, the older people actually cried because this is, it's not even close to what we had was established and built. And then Antichus um, the fourth, he comes in 169 B.C. and he desecrates it again. Okay, and it's rebuilt by King Herod in 20 B.C., and it took 46 years to build the temple, okay, on this temple mount, on the same area, and this is, this is where, in 70 A.D., that temple was then smashed down again. Okay, now there's talk of this, the third temple come, but yeah, I want to show you something here, is that this is what is currently on the temple mount area, okay? That, to the right-hand side, that whole block kind of looking area is called the temple mount, has this thing got a, a pointer with a red light? Do you think it does? Oh, there we go. Look at that. Follow my red dot, okay? I'll do it on both sides, okay? So this, this area, okay, is called the Temple Mount. If you look just to that area over there, that is where the Western Wall is. That whole area there is separated for men and women to come up. Men would come, and they come up against the wall because this is the Western Wall of the Temple Mount, which still to Jewish people is holy to them. It's the last remnant of this building and established on here. Okay? South, south of it is this is where the city of David lies. Along the bottom here, this is the Kidron Valley that flows through there. Just a little bit up over, about over there is the Eastern Gate, which is blocked and closed off because the Messiah is going to, if he comes, he's going to come through that gate, so they've locked it out. He's not going to come through the gate. I think he'll just tell the gate to move, eh? Okay? <laughs> This, this area is occupied and, and now owned by Islam. This, 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 is, this is regarded as the second and third most holy sites in Islam religion. This is here is called the Dome of the Rock. This is the third most holy site in Islam. 
This here is the second most holy site. It's a mosque called Al Al Qasa. Something I don't know how to, uh, uh, exactly. Okay, the first the first and most holy place in Islam is Mecca. Okay, where they walk around that rock and they from um, Abraham time. Okay, I want to give you. I'm giving you context here to see. Okay, where this Temple Mount, where this Dome of the Rock is built, there. This is more or less the area where the first and second temples, this is the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Okay? Now I want to just and break down a little bit about what a threshing floor is. Okay? A threshing floor is typically around seven and a half to maybe 12 meters in a circle. Okay? During harvest time, the, the guys would collect the sheaves of grain. Okay? And it's important to, for a threshing floor to be flat, but also high up. So you could see the city of David was down below, but up high on the hill was this threshing floor because you need wind. Okay, and what happens is that you've got oxen or donkey that pull the threshing sledge around in a circle, and it's had um, the flat piece of wood, and it had sharp rocks underneath the wood, and it would pull all the sheaves of the wheat and would start separating the, the sheave, the, the, the basic the, the wheat and the dross. Okay, you understand? We've heard those, the ch- sorry, the chaff and the wheat. Okay? Then what would happen is the, the, the farmer would take his winnowing fork and he would throw up okay, the chaff and then the heavier wheat would fall down and the chaff would blow away and they're left with the wheat and then they would grind that and they would flour, they would make all sorts of things kind of from that. Okay? When they gathered around this place, this was often a time of celebration okay, since the task indicated a successful harvest. People would gather and they would celebrate because look at the harvest. That would only happen once a year. Okay? And the stalks and the chaff, and the, as you say, is blown away and remains behind the heavier weed. Now, it's interesting that all this takes place on the, on the threshing floor, okay, which was a place of worship where the temple mount is, where Abraham brought Isaac to. Now, the threshing floor process became a natural and fitting symbol of judgment in the Old Testament. Okay? An Old Testament understanding, the threshing floor, threshing floor resembled judgment because of separation. Okay, so that was common in, in the understanding. Okay, the floor was the largest within a village. Town elders were typically present to oversee the threshing of the year's crop because it was a key time and only took place once a year. The area was suitable for legal transactions, criminal trials, and public decisions because it was a big flat space where more people could gather. If they didn't do it on the threshing floor, it was done at the city gates where the elders would sit and they would legislate. Okay? how it all plays out. So this is a significant moment that took place on the site. Now let's move to the New Testament and what John the Baptist starts prophesying. And you'll see this piece of land and how it plays out. Okay, and you'll see the link to the New Covenant of what John prophesied. Matthew 3, we know John came shouting and calling out the one coming from the wilderness. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. That whole sandal's not worthy to carry. A, disciple, a, 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 a rabbi's disciples would do a lot of menial tasks for their, for their rabbi. But one thing they didn't do is untie their shoes and carry their shoes because it was too menial. Okay, so what's John saying? I'm not even worthy to untie and carry this guy's sandals. Okay, so he's taking it to a next... Only slaves do that, basically. He says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Listen carefully. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor 
and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is John prophesying of this Messiah and what he is going to do. Now this is not when he first came, this is when he comes again. Okay, so now we're talking of that second return of Christ. Okay, we understand this, this speaks a lot into this, the winnowing fork, the separating. Jesus came and did that a lot already with the religious and those that understood the way. Okay? Let's see what Jesus says, talking to his disciples, sitting on the Mount of Olives with his disciples. And when the Son of Man comes in glory, okay, now this is, um, okay, let's just read the passage. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on the right, but the goats on the left. Okay, what's this talking about? John prophesied that this king is going to come and he's winning forks in his hand. He's going to be a separate, there's going to be this chaff, there's going to be judgment that's going to take place. And there's a separating of a shepherd with his sheep and his goats. Okay? Now remember, this is the same place Abraham brought Isaac. This is the same place where the angel was stopped in Jerusalem of his sword of the pestilence of killing people. This is the threshing floor of Ornan. This is where David said we will build the temple. This is where Solomon constructed the temple. This is where Jesus will come and sit and rule, see, sit on His glorious throne. Okay? There will be something in place where He will reign and He will rule on this earth for the millennium that will start when He comes to do this. And then He will bring judgment to the earth. Now, what is this judgment? You see, because John the Baptist was prophesying this about judgment was going to come for what? Just for salvation? Just believing yes or no? Further in that passage, when we read in Matthew 25, Jesus starts saying this to them, His disciples. He says, For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Okay, he's not... That's the soccer ball, I bet you. <laughs> it's okay. My son did that during the week at our house as well. So maybe it's a recurring. Maybe it happens in threes. Get ready. Somewhere in your house. Yeah. Okay. So Jesus is speaking to them. Just leave it, babes. Just leave it. Yeah. Okay. He's talking to them about who he's going to be caring for. And then the king, later in the passage, it says, And the king answered them, Truly I say to you, he's the king saying to them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these, my brothers, you did to me. So what is he speaking about? He's, he's talking about a position of who we honor and look at. I'll break this down to you. He's speaking with how we will regard the nation of Israel and how we regard the Jewish people. Now this is where if you don't understand replacement theology and supersessionism, this doesn't have place for you. But what is Jesus saying here? If you cared for the least of these, you cared for me. His people... I've told you that book, a Jew is going to rule the world. He's going to sit on his throne and he's going to reign. And we're going to rebuild and we're going to set things in place. But there's a judgment that is going to take place. 
over how we have treated this nation. Okay? And, it, and it's going to be those, you see, when, when, when he starts his millennial reign, those that are saved and secure in him don't have to fear this judgment. But there are wicked nations that have turned against God's people. They will pay. A time will come where they will have to answer and there will be the separation that will take place. You see, we have been grafted in. This is not for the church. It says the nations. Now, people argue whether it's actually governmental, like governmental Israel. Now, they're saved and everyone, and it's God's people and all nations will be subjected to His reign of His people. If it's governmental Israel or spiritual Israel, we'll, as we pan out the story here, we'll understand that a little bit more. But it says there the nations will come before Him. We have been grafted in, as he speaks in Romans, about that you were not part of the commonwealth, but now you are. We've been grafted in. Okay, but how we regard God's people and setting in place is extremely, extremely important. And I'll show you some from Old Testament passages. In Micah 4, it says this. Now, this is everybody against, against Israel. How many nations are assembled against you, saying, let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. Zion is always referring to Mount Zion. Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount, the place of worship in Jerusalem. That's what it's referring to, okay? But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand this plan. This is Micah prophesying in 700 BC, okay? This is around the same time of Isaiah. It's 250 years after David, okay? But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand His plan that He has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, meaning your authority, you will rule, and I will make your hooves bronze, you will have good armies, and you shall beat in pieces many peoples, and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Christ is going to come and reign over us all, and every nation is going to have to bow to Him. And how we have regarded that, see, South Africa sits in an interesting position where we are very, very against Israel. Okay? I'll read another passage in Isaiah 28, so I'm nearly done, okay? Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste, and I will make justice the measuring line. We've heard this between you and I, justice, <laughs> and righteousness the plumb line. Okay, how we stand before him. And hail will sweep away the refugee of lies and water with overwhelming shelter. Who's the Zion? Who's a stone? Who's a tested stone? Who's a precious cornerstone? It's speaking of the Messiah. Do you know that there are many prophecies in the Old Testament that were all going to be fulfilled on his return? There's a whole lot of prophecies that are not fulfilled yet. We can't read the Bible in completion because the story's not done. There's a whole lot of prophecies. That cornerstone is still going to be planted and is planted, but planted and rule and sit on His glorious throne on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Okay? Again, Isaiah is prophesying in around 700 BC. Okay? Speaking of the second coming of the Messiah. And I just want to finish up with this. We are going to break bread here quickly as we wrap up and we've given the kids some extra time to break windows and to eat lots of things and have fun. <laughs> okay. We are walking into a season where we are cel celebrate the return of, oh, not the return, the birth of Jesus 
and I, and I kind of, more and more I think about Christmas time. Yes, his birth's important, but what he did and what he came to do is more important. And, and, and we always get stuck about what we're going to preach on Christmas. The world wants to keep him in baby Jesus state. He's not baby Jesus. He's ruling on the throne. Okay? And the nations will tremble before him. That's what we celebrate. That's what we honor. So as we are going to celebrate this month, this new covenant, but today we're going to break bread together. I just want to touch on a little bit, quick thing here quickly before. Let's go back, right back. Now we've plotted this picture with this land. It seems so important. And the space of land in Jerusalem, Temple Mount area. Going right back to Abraham's time. And Abraham bumped into somebody and had a bit of a conversation with somebody. His name was Melchizedek. Okay, read this passage. And Melchizedek, king of who? Salem. All, all documentaries, all doctrines, or, sorry, uh, docu- uh, not documentaries. Um, what's, what are books that theologians write? Commentaries. All, all commentaries will say that Salem was Jerusalem. Okay? He, what did he bring out? Bread and wine. He was a priest of the Most High God, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and be blessed, be God most high, and he delivered your enemies into your hand. Now we're going back a thousand years before David, and Abraham met this man, Melchizedek, king of Salem. Okay? In Psalm 110 it says, The Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind. You are priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It's speaking about David, but it was pointing forward to a Messiah that will walk in the order of Melchizedek. And in Psalm 76 it says, In Judah, God is known... His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem. Okay? So Melchizedek was way, way before the Jebusites were even there. This land, this place. Okay? God has an order. And the story is not over yet. His dwelling place in Zion, which is Jerusalem. Okay? Let's read in Hebrews. Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. He was king of peace because... The name of the city he ruled as king was Salem, which means peace. And he was also a priest of the Most High God. Now, when Abraham was returning from defeating many kings in battle, Melchizedek went out to meet him and blessed him. And what did he bring out was bread and wine. Then Abraham took a tenth of everything he had won in battle and gave it to Melchizedek. Then Melchizedek, this Melchizedek has no father or mother and no record of any of his ancestors. He was never born and never died. But his life is like a picture of the Son of God, a king priest forever. Okay? So essentially, going back thousands of years ago, this was almost like the first communion. Okay? They didn't sacrifice an animal. He brought out bread and wine. Okay? I was going to give you some a touch on this Melchizedek, because this is a big topic. Okay? Okay? We know nothing about this guy. Melchizedek. Okay, this group of people lived around the same time as Abraham, thousands of years ago, and he was king over Salem, which we would agree is Jerusalem. Okay, Abraham was in that area. Now, prophetic significance of pointing to Jesus the Messiah. Okay, there's many different theological understandings here. People think this is actually Jesus. I honestly lean more towards that he was a person and the king of Salem. He wasn't an angelic figure. He was a real person. Okay, and he, but he was a type of Christ, a foreshadow, just like with Moses' time, with the ark and everything that was a foreshadow of what's to come. Okay. What's important here is, is that Aaronic, Aaron's priesthood was temporal okay, and has come to an end. 
Okay, this was pointing to a time coming ahead. They didn't sacrifice an animal. They had bread and, wa- bread and wine together. Okay? Okay, not Aaron. Okay, so that they didn't sacrifice an animal. The Aaronic um, order of priesthood has come to an end. We don't sacrifice animals anymore. We come to Him by the covenant set with bread and wine. Where thousands of years ago, this moment was opened up and understood before us. And that today. Okay, that's a lot. We've covered a lot today. Okay. <clears throat> what, I'm, what I'm wanting to highlight for you is that God, when He sets something in order, doesn't make mistakes. Okay, he, when, he, when, he, when He's speaking to Abraham, He set him in place. Look at what's happened on that place. There's coming a time when our king will rule on that Temple Mount area. And He will rule the nations from that point. We can take thanksgiving and honor in what God has done. So we're going to break bread together as we finish up here. So let's just clear the tables. Let's maybe just, um, wait, let's just, let's just, uh, what's the best way to do this, Sandy? Pray first. And then what you do is you all go and go and get some bread and wine and hang with two or three people and just honor this covenant that we're walking into this month, okay, and honoring a new order, a new way that's been set in place for the people of God. Come, let's just pray and we honor Him today. Father, we want to thank You. Sure. That for thousands of years, we can see Your plan of Your story coming forth. We want to thank You, Lord, that You have set in place a land and a people. We want to thank You, Father, that we are partakers of the promises now because we've been grafted into the story. And we are now called the sons of God. We are now called Your children. And Father, as we come before You, thanking You, Jesus, for what You have done, by this love that you have given us, by pouring out your life to us, we come and say thank you, that you are King and Lord of all, that this covenant set in place, set in order thousands of years ago, gives us life, gives us freedom, and now makes us belong and be a part of what you have called us. So we honor you and we glorify the name of our King Jesus. Amen, amen. Let's just come up and take some bread and wine or juice. Can I I ask you all to go and get your bread and juice and go back to your seats quickly? We're going to do a declaration to end up here. I think it's important. Let's just get that quickly. It's, It's only 10 to 12. God's outside of time. Yeah. The kids have had a jaw. Yeah. Okay, we can just go back to our seats quickly. And we're going to do this together. Okay. Okay, good. Okay, we all got. We can just stand and honor God together with us. Yeah. Come, let's stand together if we can. Okay. Yeah. What's a half an hour in your life? Nothing in the big scheme of things, right? Nothing. Okay, so Father, we want to thank you that as we partake of this, your body that was beaten and bruised and broken for us, we thank you that this is the culmination of a covenant that has been set in place 
for us that now makes us your children. And so, Father, as your people, we thank you. We thank you that by your stripes we're healed. We just declare healing over everybody. And let's partake of the body of Christ together. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> thank you, Jesus. first brought to Melchizedek and Abraham thousands of years ago as a foreshadow of what we would be doing now. 4,000 something years ago. He doesn't miss a beat, our God Almighty. Yeah? And this blood, this juice, which is representative of His blood, that every covenant had to be set in order by blood. And Jesus said, I will pour out my life and my blood will be shed so that all will be saved. That all will know the power of resurrection life. That there's life in His blood. And we honor this covenant that we have with our King that will never be rescinded, never be broken, and set in order where we will one day reign with Him on this earth and know that He's our King and our Lord forever. Amen. 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 Hallelujah. <laughs> okay, we're going to do a declaration to end off over our nation and what we're praying for. We're going to speak this out together. Amen. Let's go. You got there, Bella. Okay, the verse we're going to use is what um, Corin was praying through Isaiah 60. And there's more on this verse. It speaks about the new covenant a bit. But let's just go to the next page. And let's say this together. Let's go. She's excited. Okay. Just hold before we put glasses back. Let's go. We decree today that South Africa, it is your time to arise and shine. For your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. We as the Ecclesia take our rightful place as a legislative body and we decree that the thick darkness which covers our land is to be lifted in Jesus' name. All demonic assignments through witchcraft, ancestral worship, corruption and violence are to be stopped in the name of Jesus. We decree that the light of our Lord has come to our land today and South Africa, you have now entered into your prophetic destiny. We decree that the heart of this nation be opened in the spirit to receive heaven's plans and strategies. We release righteousness, truth, peace, unity, and justice to flow like rivers into our land today. We destroy all the works of the enemy to strangle and cripple South Africa and its people. We decree heaven's order over all government structures and entities today. We say, South Africa, you will birth the next revival and fulfill your destiny. Nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Nkosi sikalela i Africa. Waza moya. Waza moya. God bless Africa. Come, Spirit, come. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Have a fantastic afternoon and fantastic rest of the week. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. <laughs>